0: This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Dear Fathers, we come before you today. We pray that as we look at this quite difficult to read passage, that you help us to understand uh, what is teaching us and to understand uh, more about you and our place before you. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Murder, violence, incest, rape, rage, hatred, injustice. Uh, if you watch TV or go to the movies or play any computer games or read many books or even reach, uh, look at the news, uh, we are increasingly confronted by all these ugly things of the world, isn't it? Uh, in fact, much of what the world calls entertainment uh, actually contains a lot of these things. Uh, you just have to watch... Uh, Game of Thrones, or something like that, and, or even read the books, and all these elements are all there. But the last place that we would expect to read about these things a murder, violence, incest, rape, hatred, injustice would be in the Bible. Because, after all, isn't the Bible God's holy book? Isn't it about God's people? Isn't it about God Himself? But yet, today as we uh, look at the, today's passage in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 13, all these elements are there. Uh, rape, incest, murder, hatred, violence, injustice. And this is not entertainment. Okay, we must not mistake 2 Samuel 13 as flowing from a pen of a scriptwriter or a novelist of a book. But these are real people in real situations in history, and this is about God's people and specifically God's chosen king king david and his family so why do we find it here in the bible what is it doing here why are we told about this what lessons are we to learn as we look at this passage well last week uh, we looked at uh, 2 samuel chapter 12 and we saw that actually 2 samuel chapter 12 was a continuation of what we saw earlier on in chapter 11 where David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, he had murdered her husband Uriah, he had been confronted by God through the prophet Nathan and God had forgiven him because David seemingly had repented and he was sorry for what he did. In fact, if we turn back to what we read at the end of chapter 12 last week, if you would think of David's life as the update of his Facebook page, you would actually see that things were going quite well. You'd see David with the crown of the Ammonites where he defeated the Ammonites uh, after they had despised his kindness. You'd see him in his Facebook page update with the baby that he had very recently with Bathsheba. And you'd sort of think that on the surface of everything, things were actually pretty good in David's life. But then again, if you look at Facebook, everything seems pretty good all the time. But that's not what it seems in reality That's not what it seems when you actually put God into the picture. Because in chapter 12 last week, we saw that God had given His word, His promise, that because of what David had done, consequences would flow as a result because of what he did to Uriah in killing him by the sword, and with Bathsheba because he committed adultery with her. So God had said through the prophet Nathan to David, Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says, Out of your own household I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. He will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this in broad daylight before all Israel. So on the surface, everything seems to be fine and dandy with David. He's conquered again. He's got a new child. He's married with Sheba. Everything seems to be fine. But the judgments proclaimed by God's word are hanging over David like a dark cloud, right? The sword will never depart from your house, and out of your own household, someone is going to commit adultery with your wives in public. And therefore, when we come to chapter 13, these judgments are hanging over David. So in verse 1, it says, In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Amnon became so obsessed with his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. He, she was a virgin and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Now who is this uh, person, Amnon? <clears throat> Excuse me. doesn't seem like a very important person, it just seems like part of the uh, story. But actually Amnon is a very, very important person within the family of David. So if you go back to 2 Samuel chapter 3, it actually lists for you the sons of and the children of David. And we see that Amnon was actually the child of Ahunem of Jezreel. Yep, that's up there. And so Amnon is actually the very eldest son, he is the firstborn of the house or the line of the dynasty of David. He is the heir apparent to the throne of David. So he is very, very important. He's like the prince in waiting, the king in waiting. Okay, so for for the for the Jewish person who's Following this story, Amnon is a very, very important person. And we read that Amnon is in love. And you think, oh, well, how romantic, how innocent, and how sweet that is, right, young love. But you realize that actually as you read just the first two verses that he's in love with his sister, Tamar. Now we know that David married lots of people. If you follow to Samuel 3, uh, if you look up here on the slide, David also married uh, Makkah, daughter of Talmai, king of Gersha. Now Gersha is somewhere out of Israel. So this marriage maybe had been a political marriage, right? To unite the kingdoms or at least bring peace between the kingdoms. So Absalom was the third son of David. He was the son that issued from his marriage to Makkah. So Tamar is actually the half-sister of Amnon, right? Same father, different mothers, but still wrong to be married together. So I googled it. In Singapore law, you're not allowed to marry people of the same uh, genetic father or mother, even though they're step-siblings. It's like marrying your step-brother or stepsister. But even more, in the law in Israel, in Leviticus, it said very strictly that God... Band any relationship or marriage between half-brothers and half-sisters. Do not have sexual relations with your sister, either your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether she is born in the same home or elsewhere. Do not have sexual relations with the daughter of your father's wife, born to your father, she is your sister. Everyone who makes, who does any of these detestable things, such persons must be cut off from their people keep my requirements and do not follow any of the detestable customs that were practiced before you came and do not defile yourself with them. I am the Lord, your God. So even from the first verse already, we read that there's something something wrong, right? Something wrong happening here. But as we read on, we realize that this wrongness is even more sinister, wicked and evil. Because the way that Amnon's love for his sister Tamar described reveals to us a very dark undertone right so pay attention to the language that is used right because the language that is used sort of has a lot of double meanings in the course of time Amnon son of David fell in love with Tamar the beautiful sister of Absalom son of David Amnon became so obsessed with his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. She was a virgin; it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Now, the word "beautiful" here is the same word that is used to describe Bathsheba. So, if we just remember a few chapters back, the love, so-called, that David had for Bathsheba was a sexual love. It was a, it was a lust. Right, and here we see that this love that Amnon had for Tamar was not so much a love but an obsession you know he's like a stalker right? stalking over his sister in a sexual way because he's obsessed with her sexual beauty and that's why we're told that she was a virgin and he couldn't do anything to her now if you read all these things together you'll see that actually Amnon is a very sick puppy he says, you know, he's a, he's a pervert because he's thinking of sexual thoughts about his virgin sister. And two times, <clears throat> next slide, it's emphasized to us by the author that this is his sister that he's thinking about. Not just any person, but his sister. And it actually has very strong echoes with what David did, right? It's David, his father, had an obsessive lust with a forbidden object, another man's wife. So here, Amnon has an obsessive lust with a forbidden object, his sister. Then we come to this uh, person, which actually, we don't even know why he's here, isn't it? Because the story could go on, but here we meet a person called Jonadab. And again, we think, well, he's not very important, but he is a very important person, as we will see. So in verse 3, Amnon had an advisor named Jonadab, the son of Shemir, David's brother. Jonadab was a very shrewd man. So here, Jonadab is a cousin <clears throat> to both Amnon and Absalom. He is the son of David's brother. Okay, So they are all cousins. He's not just an advisor, he's not just a friend, he's part of the inner circle as a cousin. But he's a very shrewd man. Uh, He's very shrewd in the sense where, you know, if you do watch movies, he's like in every prison or gang or in politics, you need a fixer. Someone who gets things done which seemingly can't get done. And here he comes up with a seemingly innocent plan because on the surface, if you give Jonadab the benefit of the doubt, we don't really know if he knows of Amnon's obsession or his perverted mind. But maybe he thinks, well, maybe the romantic and uh i'm going to give them an opportunity to come together but at the end of the day he's not a good person he's not a good person because he's not a wise person before god he's a a shrewd person and the understanding of shrewdness is a worldly sort of cunning not a world not a godly wisdom because if he was a wise person in god's eyes he would have told his cousin Amnon, look, you shouldn't be in love with your sister because there's no future in this relationship because God does not want you to have a relationship with your sister. You see, if you look in Proverbs chapter 1, what is the definition of wisdom? The definition of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. But Jonadab has no fear of the Lord and there's no fear of the Lord in his advice. It is just a worldly cunning, a worldly shrewdness. But what happens next is something which is totally unexpected and shocking, right? Because we see hints of it, but we don't believe it's really going to happen. <clears throat> so, let's start from verse 6. This part is very important, so we're going we're gonna to follow it. So, Amnon follows the plan of Jonadab to the T, and he lays down and pretended to be ill in verse 6. When the king came to see him, Amnon said to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and make some special bread in my sight, so I might eat it from her hand. David sent word to Tamar at the palace, Go to the house of your brother Amnon and prepare some food for him. So Tamar went to the house of her brother Amnon, who was but lying down. She took some dough and kneaded it and made the bread in his sight and baked it. Then she took the pan and served him the bread, but he refused to eat. Send everyone out of here, Amnon said, so everyone left him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food here into my bedroom, so I may eat it from your hand. And Tamar took the bread she had prepared and brought it to her brother Amnon in his bedroom. But when she took it it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, Come to bed with me, my sister. No, my brother, she said to him, Don't force me, such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king. He will not keep me from being married to you. But he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Then Amnon hated her with an intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. Amnon said to her, Get up and get out. No, she said to him, Sending me away would be a greater wrong than what you have really done to me. But he refused to listen to her. He called his personal servant and said, Get this woman out of my sight and bolt the door after her. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. She was wearing an ornate robe, for this was the kind of garment the virgin daughters of the king wore. Tamar put ashes on her head, tore the ornate robe she was wearing. She put her hands on her head and went away weeping aloud. Now, this passage, uh, this passage is really tragic and heartbreaking. Uh, but the first thing we really see <clears throat> is the ignorance of David. The ignorance of David because when he is called up by his son, Am- Amnon, he's like, you know, hey dad, you know, I'm really not feeling very well. Could you send uh, my stepsister Tamar to, to come and feed me so that I might feel better? Notice David's reaction, he never asks why, he never suspects, he never thinks that something is not right. Think of how many children he has, of all the stepsisters and all the, 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 the children that uh, he has, why does Amnon ask just for Tamar? Obviously David has no idea of the weaknesses or the flaws of his own children or what his children ha- have in mind. And this, in a sense, is not something that we're used to because we're always used to the wisdom of David. So in 2 Samuel chapter 8, he reigned over all Israel, it says, doing what is just and right for all his people. But here he doesn't do what is just and right for Tamar. Instead, he instructs her to go to Amnon's house in total ignorance of what is going to happen. And if this is portrayed as the ignorance of David, then what comes next is the innocence of Tamar. Because in every way we see that Tamar is an unsuspecting, loving and caring, helpful sister. She goes to Amnon's house, she brings the ingredients, she prepares the bread, she makes it, she brings it for her brother to make him feel better. And I think that's what makes this passage so sad because I think that given Tamar's uh, situation given who we know of her she is the virgin daughter of the king she would never find herself in this situation in another person's house alone with a man and feeding that person because the last place that she would expect to be attacked or taken advantage of would be her own brother and that's why even when uh, her brother Amnon sends all the people out of the room. She doesn't suspect because she doesn't suspect that her brother of all people would do this to her, it would be unthinkable to her. And that's what makes verse 11 and 12 so striking, right? Because when she took it to him in love, the bread to eat, to care for him, he grabbed her and said, come to bed with me, my sister. Now this is not an invitation, this is a demand. There is no idea of where he is trying to be romantic or woo her, he just wants what he wants. And if it is the ignorance of David and the innocence of Tamar in view here, then we see the wickedness of Amnon. In verse 12 and 13, it basically summarizes the behavior of Amnon in the words of Tamar. No, my brother, she said to him, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You'll be one of the wicked fools of Israel. So, on three levels, this is a terrible thing because the first level is that what he was doing was wickedness unprecedented in God's people. He was raping or having sex incestuously with his own sister. And this should not be done among God's people. It was a very wicked thing. It was a wicked thing against Tamar because once this happened, she knew that it would be very hard for her to be married. And as we read later on, she was desolate. That means she was single. She was unmarried for the rest of her life. Living her life in disgrace because of what happened in one afternoon. And it was a wicked thing for himself because what it says there that he would be a wicked fool literally means that he is a godless, depraved, wicked person before God. He would be on the level of rapists and the people who were described as homosexual uh, rapists earlier on in the Bible. But Amnon didn't listen. And what makes it worse as we read along is that after he rapes her, he has no more use for Tamar as a, as someone with a packet of cigarettes after smoking the cigarettes. He just discards her and kicks her out of his house. In fact, what makes it worse when it describes his emotions? Because we were told right in verse 2 that he was obsessively loving her to the point where he was ill. But yet after he had sex with her and raped her, he hated her even more than he lusted after her. So the intense feeling of hatred must have been through the roof. And it just shows what a wicked person Amnon was because he was unrepentant. There was no awareness of his sinfulness. There was no awareness or fear of God. There was no apology. There was no effort to make things right. But rather once he had what he wanted, he discarded her. And I think as we come to the very end of this section, you can't help but feel great anger and disgust at what happened because imagine the scene, right? You see poor Tamar, she's got dust on her head, she's had a virginity taken from her, her clothes are in rags, she's wandering in the streets, and this is the virgin daughter of the king. Now, if this is just a stranger to us, then how much more the depth of emotion and hatred and anger that would have been felt by the family members, especially David and Absalom. And the passage goes on in verse 21. When King David heard all this, he was furious. Full stop. Now that is a shock. Because if we feel anger and fury, and disgust, then, as the father, how should David have felt? Yes, he was rightly furious, but, but there was a full stop. Nothing happened. A great injustice had been done. In fact, just like Tamar said, something that should not have been done among God's people. And David was the king and the judge. All power rested in him. He was furious, and nothing happened. He did nothing to Amnon. He did nothing for Tamar. He did nothing at all. And here we see that together with David's ignorance is his impotence, his weakness, his powerlessness. We don't know whether he was a weak father or an indulgent father or whatever, but he failed to punish Amnon just as he failed to protect Tamar. As a father before the rape, he should have protected her As a father, after the rape, he should have called for justice for her, but he did none of those things. And that's why it's quite interesting, because a few commentators have read into the passage and said, you know, every time Tamar is described, how is she described? She's always described as somebody's sister, the sister Absalom the sister Amnon, but she's never described as the daughter of David. And the reason why she's never described as the daughter of David is because David failed her as a father. He didn't protect her and he didn't call for justice for her. And because of his failure in protecting her, his failure in seeing justice for her, it sows the seeds for what happens next. Because if he doesn't act, then Absalom acts instead. We read that Absalom hated Amnon. He hated Amnon, but it was one of those quiet, simmering, revenge-plotting hatreds, right? It's not one of those, you know, road rage things, right? Where, you know, you, you shake your fist at someone. It was, a, it was the quiet, plotting sort of hatred where he said to his sister, don't worry about it, don't take it to heart, because he was taking it to heart, right? He was going to do something about it. And that's exactly what happens he puts together a very cunning plan. Uh, if we don't understand what's happening, basically he organizes a, a sheep-sharing festival. Uh, I suppose that's what you do when you have lots of flocks, you know, you have a sheep-sharing festival, see who can share as much uh, wool as possible. I don't know, but something you do in the sheep-sharing festival. And he invites his father to come to the sheep-sharing festival. But he also invites all the palace staff to come to the sheep sharing festival. Because he knows that his dad will probably say no. You know, it's like, hey dad, you know you come up to my place for the sheep sharing festival, but bring everybody with you. For the father, David thinks, Well, it's gonna it's gonna be a real burden on my son, right? I mean if it's not just me, but you know, all my staff, all the people come along, it's very troublesome. But actually, Absalom has a plan, right? He says, okay, yeah, I understand that. Too, too troublesome, too many people. Look, instead of you coming, why don't you send the next in line, the crown prince, to represent you instead? Right? What do you send? Amnon. Well, instead of you and the whole palace staff, just send one person. Now, we saw earlier on that David, had been uh, hoodwinked by Amnon, and now he's hoodwinked by Absalom. He sent Tamar to be raped, and then now he sends Amnon to be murdered. He's ignorant in every way. He doesn't know his children and all their plans and all their machinations and all their thinking and all their their thinking. I mean, obviously, this is Absalom. This is Tamar's brother, right? What? surely he must have some ill will towards his, uh, his other brother who raped his sister. But he doesn't seem to know what's happening. And he again, if you read the, the text, he instructs Amnon and sends him to the sheep-sharing festival. But curiously again, we come to this person called Jonadab, right? Because when the rumor comes back to the palace that all the king's children have been murdered. Who speaks up? Jonadab. And look at, at the certainty of the way Jonadab speaks in verse 33. Verse 32, sorry. But Jonadab, son of Shemir, David's brother, said, My lord should not think that they killed all the princes. Only Amnon is dead. This has been Absalom's express intentions ever since the day Amnon raped his sister Tamar. My lord, the king should not be concerned about the report that all the king's sons are dead. Only Amnon is dead. Now, this is the days before uh, Facebook, Twitter, WhatsApp and SMS, right? How is Jonadab so sure that nobody else is killed except for Amnon? He's a very shrewd man, right? He has inside knowledge. Maybe he even helped Absalom plan this great plan because you know the plan about inviting everybody, but then you know not everybody's going to come, but just invite one person. That sounds very similar to the other plan, right? It's got the fingerprints of Jonadab on it. So Jonadab also has his fingers in the death of Amnon, just as he had his fingers on the rape of Tamar. But whatever the case, whether he knew, whether he was inside knowledge, whether he actually planned it, the end result is that by the very end of the chapter, Amnon, the crown prince, David's eldest son, is dead. Absalom, the next in line to be king because the second son died some other time. He's in exile back to his grandfather's place, back in Gersha. Now what are we to learn from all this? What is the lesson for us? That we are not to be ignorant, indulgent, impotent and powerless, a father like David? Is it that we are not to be wicked perverts like Amnon? Or is it we are not to be godless and shrewd and cunning like Jonadab? Or is it that we are supposed to be compassionate from people who suffer from rape or incest or sexual abuse? I think the lesson today is about God. And God's word and God's promises, because the flow of chapter 13 comes all the way from chapter 12. And God's words, God's promises, and God's character actually are coming to pass because God had said the sword would come to the house of David. And God unleashed the wickedness in David's family. And indeed, the sword has come to David's family. Amnon is dead. Absalom has gone to his grandfather's house in a foreign country, and it begins this long slide into destruction and all sorts of things happening in David's family. I remember, if you look at the beginning of chapter 13, how did chapter 13 begin? It began with the words, in the course of time. In the course of time, I remember someone in our Bible study in Pongo on Thursday said, you know, when it says in the course of time, it seems as if it is time enough where people have forgotten? In the course of time, where it seems as if God has forgotten, it seems as if nothing's going to happen. But actually, when you read it in the context of what does happen, when it says in the course of time, it actually really means in the course of time, God's word is fulfilled and his promise of judgment has come to pass the lesson for us here is that when God promises something, when God says something in His Word, especially about judgment, in the course of time, it will come to pass. And God has promised for all of us now another judgment, another word, another promise. In 2 Peter 3 it says, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient of you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the law will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear of a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position." but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. See, what we're to see here, after we've recovered from the horror and the shock of what happens to Tamar, is to see that, that we must have a solid and firm conviction that God's word, His judgmental word, in the course of time will be fulfilled. And to be forewarned about it, Means that we must repent and turn to Jesus and hold on to Him. See, at the church camp, we watched a video on uh, missions. And we watched about these uh, tribal people in Cambodia and the border of Cambodia, Laos and Vietnam. I can't remember who they were. There were so many tribes. I think it's it the Krang or the somebody. And until recently, there were no Christians there. But now there are Christians in the thousands and they never had a Bible and now they have a Bible. And it showed uh, this woman, a uh, tribal woman, singing this song that she wrote, a Christian song that she wrote in her own language. And it was, it was really quite quaint. And, and it was, you know, the way that she wrote it was really quite interesting. And, I, and it was very profound because I remember the last verse of her song was, hurry, hurry, and turn to Jesus. And I was thinking to myself, if in the course of time, God's judgment is coming and we never know when it's coming, then we must hurry. And hurry and keep turning to Jesus because God will keep his word of judgment. If he kept his word of judgment to David, he will keep his word of judgment to the whole of humanity. So we must hurry and hurry and keep turning to him at all times. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear fathers, we come before you today. We recognize that The violence, the incest, the rape, the murder, the injustice of Tamar, of Absalom, of Amnon, Jonadab, David, all these things were true because you unleashed this wickedness upon the family, that you let loose uh, the sinfulness in the hearts of David's family, and that you did not restrain it because by the actions of sinful men, you actually allowed your judgment, your word, your promise to be fulfilled. In the course of time, inevitably, your word, your judgment, your promise always comes true. We pray that we may have solid and firm conviction of this fact and reality, so that we will always hurry to Jesus to hold on to Him, because there you promise again in your word which will always come to pass that it is only in Jesus that we find safety from this judgment. We pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.